So have you ever done something just really amazing, but there was nobody else there to witness it? Has that ever happened to anybody else? Isn't that the worst? Like something happens, it's like, man, there's nobody here to see this. And I probably shared this story before, simple little things. One day when the kids were little, we were at a park, and they had those little red smushy balls like dodgeball kinds of things we're going back to the car i'm like i'll toss it back over to the swing set you know those little kid swings that are kind of cupped and have the little holes fling it all the way across there and it just it sticks right in this little bitty seat and i'm looking around and the kids are already in the car someone's already in the car i'm like darn man nobody was there see if i do something great i want everybody to see it right isn't it funny how jesus In the early part of his ministry, when he would perform miracles, he would say, don't tell anybody. You ever notice that? That ever strike you as a little bit like, what's going on here? Because isn't the purpose that we want as many people to hear about Jesus as possible, right? So why did he do that? I mean, he did it several times. In um, Mark chapter 5, Jesus raised a little girl from the dead and told everyone, don't tell anybody about it. In Mark 7, he healed a man who had been deaf and mute. And then told him not to tell anyone about it. I mean, come on, the poor guy can finally talk now. And Jesus says, don't tell anyone about it, right? And, and then you've got Matthew 9, where he healed two men who were blind. Uh, same thing, Luke 5, cleansed someone from leprosy. And over and over again. And he says, don't tell anyone about this. And it might seem a little odd to us at first, but we get some insight, I think, in John chapter 2. Into what Jesus was thinking here, because... This is when he was at a wedding feast. They ran out of wine. You may recall the story, which would be horribly embarrassing for the host in that culture. And so apparently Jesus' mother had the gift of hospitality because she couldn't bear the thought of them being embarrassed and people not having enough or whatever. And so she tries to involve Jesus in performing a miracle. And his response in John 2, 4 is insightful. And by the way, before I read this, let me just say, when Jesus addresses her as woman, it is actually a sign of respect, not disrespect. This isn't the woman kind of a, a, okay, don't don't read it like that. But John 2, 4, it says, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. See, that's the key there. That little phrase, my hour has not yet come. That's why Jesus kept telling people, I I don't want to be publicly recognized for the things that I'm doing because my hour has not yet come. See, the the more word got out about him and the miraculous things he was doing, the more attention it would draw toward him, which means that the religious leaders and the opposition would come more quickly. Now, Jesus knew from the very beginning where all of this was headed, right? He knew from day one that he had come to become our sacrifice for sins he knew this was going to end by him giving up his life for us so that's not the issue but it had to be done in the right time in God's timing and he needed time to be able to develop his disciples and pour into them and prepare them for the time when he would be gone and so the timing is really key here and so most of the time during his earthly ministry, he's kind of trying to fly under the radar. And then you get to the day that we call Palm Sunday, which is today. We celebrate that today. And this is when everything changes. Rather than flying under the radar, Jesus is now trying to get on everyone's radar. As he enters into Jerusalem, everything shifts and he is actually drawing attention to himself 
because he is forcing the hand of the religious leaders. The time has come for him to give up his life. He knows that. But let's pick it up in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. If you want to follow along with me here. It says, after Jesus had said this, he went up on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus and threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now, can you imagine being one of the two disciples, they're not named here, who are told to go and untie a, a colt here and bring it to Jesus? And he just, all the instruction they're given is, somebody's probably going to ask you about it and just tell them the Lord needs it. That's it. Now, I don't know about you, I... I kind of want to be a little bit more in charge of the details of things that I'm doing, right? And so I don't know if there's a little bit of humor in this to me. I don't know if there's a little bit of Jesus just teaching them to trust him, you know, and just, hey, just, just let me handle it. We don't know the circumstances around this. We don't know if Jesus arranged this in advance or just the fact that they said the Lord needs it was all that it took for them to, to let it go. We don't know all those details, but we know that they went. And, uh, and, and they, they grab this, this colt, it says. And by the way, a colt is a term that can refer to a, a young male in the horse family. And it could be a variety of things. We get clarification in John chapter 12, verse 14, that this colt was actually a young donkey in this case. So Jesus is riding in on a young donkey. Anybody ever ridden on a donkey before? I, yeah, 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 if you're like, yeah, that, I, I, I did recently, we actually um, had an opportunity to do a pretty cool little adventure on a family vacation in Mexico, and it was called the Extreme Adventure, and it included some really cool stuff, so we ziplined over a canyon, we got to uh, rappel down the side of a waterfall, they had a zipline roller coaster, and then it ended with a water slide that was so fast that you had to wear elbow pads, a helmet with a face guard on it. And I actually needed it. I could tell you that story another time. So it was an amazing, truly extreme adventure. It was aptly named. But now, you know what the most terrifying part of the whole adventure was? We had to ride these stupid donkeys to get up to the top of the zip line. And it was awful. Donkeys do not pay attention. They don't listen. They do, they do what they want to do. So why would Jesus ride into Jerusalem, making his triumphal entry? Why would he ride in on a donkey? Well, the, the, the Jewish people understood what was going on here. They knew their Old Testament. They knew their prophecy. And it clearly pointed them back to Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, 
on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, the, the king that was prophesied about was both victorious and humble. And by riding on a donkey, what it was saying was he was coming in terms of peace. See, if a king were entering into a place riding a donkey, that means he comes in terms of peace. If he's riding on a horse, that means it's time for battle. You remember from the book of Revelation how it says that Jesus will return? Revelation 19.11 says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice he judges and wages war. Listen, Jesus is coming back as the conqueror, and he will be riding a horse at that point. But in this circumstance, he is riding a donkey because it's communicating that he's coming in terms of peace. In fact, if you continue reading the very next verse from Zechariah 9, Zechariah 9.10 says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So clearly, Jesus is coming in in terms of peace. But I also want to make it clear that Jesus did not ride into Jerusalem as a victim, but as the victor. He is the triumphant king here. Yes, he humbles himself. But he comes as a king. So that's really the first thing that I want us to see today, kind of first main takeaway, is that Jesus entered Jerusalem as our humble king. As it said in the, the passage that we just read, gentle and lowly, riding on a donkey, but yet coming in as a king and fulfilling this Old Testament prophecy. And we see that the people understood that. They responded to what they saw in such a way that they recognized that this was a statement about the kingship of Jesus. In fact, one of the things that they did was they took their cloaks and they laid them down on the ground uh, before Jesus. And we get some insight into that and what that means because this was a sign of royalty. This was something you did before royalty. In the Old Testament book of 2 Kings, chapter 9, verse 13, it says, They quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. So this was a sign of the kingship of Jesus. So th there's just this exuberant celebration here. Jesus is coming as king. The people are celebrating. Verse 37 says that they began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Now again, let me point back to the fact that before Jesus performed all these miracles and said, don't tell anybody about them. Now they finally have the freedom to shout it out and to let it out. And they're just praising God for all the miracles that Jesus had performed. Which, by the way, had a dual purpose. You know, the, the, the miracles that Jesus did, they, they did a couple of things. One was they demonstrated the love, compassion, and concern that Jesus has for those who are hurting. I mean, Jesus performed miracles because he cared about people. And he saw people hurting, and so he healed those who were lame. He, he gave sight to those who were blind. He uh, even brought the dead back to life. I mean, Jesus cared deeply about the people that, that he was performing these miracles for. And I think that's a great reminder to us that God is a God who cares deeply about us. But then there is a second reason that Jesus performed these miracles, and it really ties into what we're talking about here as Jesus is coming as king, and that is 
You know, his miracles pointed to his true identity as God in human flesh. How else do you describe, how else do you explain the things that Jesus was able to do? The only explanation is because he was God. And these miracles helped to uh, reinforce that. John 14, 10 and 11. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me, when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, listen to this last phrase, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Many of these works that he's referring to are the miracles that he performed and also would refer to the way he taught and loved and those kinds of things. But he said, look, that points to who I am. If you don't believe that I am the Father and that the Father is in me, just look at the things that I'm doing. And that will provide evidence of that. And so the disciples are, are praising him for that. And it's this, you know, listen to what they, what they said here. This is actually a quote from the Old Testament, verse 38, when it says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That comes from Psalm 117, verse 26. But there is an interesting change here. In Psalm 117, 26, it talks about blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one, not the king, who comes in the name of the Lord. They, they changed that a little bit, right? They, they changed it to, to talk about the king because Jesus is coming here as king. And then the second phrase right underneath that, it says, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Does that sound familiar at all? If you were to go back to Luke chapter 2 and, and read what the uh, angels had to say when they pronounced the coming of Jesus before he was born. This is what they said to the shepherds. It says, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And then interesting how similar those are. This proclamation before Jesus entered the world was the very same proclamation that was made before he entered into Jerusalem as king for the last time. And uh, they're, 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 they're giving praise to him for who he is. So how do you, would we expect the religious leaders in the crowd to respond when all this is happening? Well, they, they responded about like we would think they would, right? They were not too happy about it. So much so, in fact, that it says that they, they got on to Jesus and they said, Rebuke, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Don't let them speak like that. And Jesus responds in verse 40. is a great response. He says, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. So what Jesus is saying here is, look, my time has come. It's time for the truth to be known about who I am. And if they stay quiet, the stones will cry out. There is no way you can stop it. Because it's time. And so there's this, this triumphal entry there's rejoicing over jesus as the coming king i mean this is there, there's just exuberant praise is the tone and then all of that changes in verse 41 listen to what it says in the next few verses here as he approached jerusalem and saw the city he wept over it and he said if you even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace but now it is hidden from your eyes. 
The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. If these preceding verses show us that Jesus entered Jerusalem as a humble king, the verses we just read show that Jesus entered Jerusalem as our heartbroken Savior. And I mean, Jesus really does put a wet blanket on their celebration here, right? I mean, they're shouting, they're praising, they're, everybody's just so happy, and they're so excited. And then Jesus sees Jerusalem and he starts weeping. Like, wow, I mean, you talk about just putting a spin on a, a joyful celebration, right? And this word here for weeping, uh, it, it just, it, it, it means to, to really mourn over someone or something. You know, some people, when they get sad, they, their eyes get a little bit watery, you know? And maybe, maybe a little tear just kind of starts to, to trickle down the side of their eye. And then there are other people, when they're sad, they just let it loose. I mean, just weep and mourn and wail, right? That's, that's the word here. Jesus, we're not talking about just a little bit of watery eyes. We're talking about him just mourning and, 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 and just this deep sadness over Jerusalem. Why? I mean, why in the, in, the, in the middle of a celebration where they're finally getting to praise him for who he is, why in the world at that moment in time would Jesus just start mourning like this and weeping over Jerusalem? And it says it's because he knew what was coming. It says, if you only you had known on this day, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. He was just absolutely heartbroken that the people of Jerusalem that he cared so much about, these are, these are God's people, and yet it was hidden from them. They didn't understand what would bring them peace, which of course was Jesus himself. The one who came in terms of peace, riding on a donkey, the only one, the prince of peace, the only one who could give them peace, they didn't understand it. They're, they're, it was hidden from them, and it absolutely broke the heart of Jesus. Ephesians 2, 17 says, He came and preached peace to you who were far away. That's speaking to, to us, Gentiles. And peace to those who were near. Now, by those who are near, he's referring to the Jewish people. Near in the sense that they had the spiritual foundation in place. They already believed in God, the, 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 the Jesus' father. I mean, that, that was their God. They were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. They had the Old Testament prophecy. They had the law that God had given them. So they were near. They were close. And everything that they had learned pointed forward to this moment in time where Jesus would enter into Jerusalem and eventually here within less than a week would die on a cross for their sins and then a week later would be raised from the dead. All of this is about to happen. Everything that they had studied, everything that they had learned about, their entire lives pointed forward to this. And they missed it. And Jesus is just broken up about it. He is absolutely brokenhearted over um, the fact that, that, that they missed it. And, you know, I just think how tragic. How tragic to be so close 
and yet to miss it. Jesus knew what was coming. Verse 43 say that it says the days will come when your enemies will build an embankment around you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. Verse 44, they will dash you to the ground and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming. See, what Jesus is talking about here, he is actually speaking with incredible clarity about what would take place uh, just a few decades later. In the year 66 AD, uh, Jerusalem revolted against the Romans. And they actually temporarily kicked the Romans out. And they set up their own government. And that set off this war uh, between God's people and, and, and the Roman people. And it went on for several years. But in, in AD 70, uh, there was a, a Roman uh, commander by the name of Titus who besieged Jerusalem. And he did so around Passover. And as they were there, and Passover time in Jerusalem, as you know, I'm sure the people would come in that lived in other areas. They would come from all over, and they would celebrate Passover there in Jerusalem. And so the Romans, this is a kind of a brilliant strategy, they actually allowed these pilgrims to enter into the city, but then they didn't allow them to leave. And so now you have this influx of all these people, and as a result... Food and water and things like that began to run out very quickly. And they literally encircled the city, just as Jesus talked about, and they cut it off from any outside supplies or anything else. And as the people were weakened, then they went into the city and they massacred them. They, they destroyed them. It's exactly what Jesus said would happen. And they even went to the temple which had previously been destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. They had rebuilt the temple, and they destroyed the temple stone by stone, ripped every stone off of the temple, just completely demolished the temple. Jesus saw all of that coming, and he was broken up about it. And he wept over it. He was brokenhearted over it. But I have to tell you, it really wasn't the fact that they were about to enter war and that, you know, these things that were going to happen. That's not what primarily broke his heart. What broke his heart more than anything was the fact that they missed who he was. That they were not going to experience the peace that God wanted to bring them. That he wanted to bring them. And so he wept over them. And church family, I read this and I have to ask myself the question, Je you know, Jesus knew what was coming, right? He knew that they were about to turn on him. He knew that the same, you know, this is a crowd that is shouting Hosanna and they're singing praises to him. And, you know, just a few short days later, there would be others in the crowd that would be stirred up by the religious leaders and they would be shouting crucify him. And Jesus knew that and he knew what was coming and he knew that the, the inhabitants of Jerusalem were going to turn against him. And yet he still wept over them. He cared that much. And the question I have to ask is, if I were in Jesus' shoes and I knew that these people were about to turn against me and about to do to me what they did to Jesus, would, would I still, would I have that response? I don't know that I would. In fact, in my flesh, I know that I wouldn't. In my flesh, I might be happy that they're about to get what they got coming. But that's not the heart that we see in Jesus here. What we see is a heart of compassion. What we see is not a God who is angry and eager to punish sin sinners for their shameful ways. Although granted, God does punish sinners for their shameful ways because not to do so would be a violation of his holiness. But it's not done out of anger. 
mean, God would be something less than God if he just compromised his standards, if he just turned his head and pretended that everything was okay. I mean, our sinfulness does demand punishment. The Bible tells us clearly that the wages of sin is death. That's why it says in Scripture that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So our punishment is death. It is eternal separation from God. That's what we deserve. And it's essential that we understand that truth. That God is holy and God is righteous and he accepts nothing less than holiness and righteousness in his presence. And you know what that means? That means that I don't qualify that means that none of us qualifies on our own because we all fall short. And so we deserve separation from God. We deserve to spend an eternity in hell when this life is over. Guys, if y'all been around for any length of time, you know I'm not a hellfire and brimstone, you know, scream at you and tell you what an awful person you are kind of a preacher. I don't think that is helpful to you and I don't think that's glorifying to God. But at the same time, I love you enough to tell you the truth. And the truth is that our sin does separate us from God. The truth is that apart from Christ, we will spend an eternity separated from God in a place of torment. That's the truth. I hope that doesn't offend anyone, but at the same time, sometimes in our culture today, we, we just sugarcoat everything. We need someone to speak the truth. That, that's the truth of our condition. But that's the very reason that we see the heart of Jesus broken. That's the reason that we see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. It's not because he is angry with them. It certainly not, isn't weeping because he's concerned about himself and what's about to happen to him. His heart is broken because he realizes that these people that he cares about so deeply are not going to get it. They don't recognize him for who he is. And so he just burst into tears. And I have to ask, you know, gosh, how, how does God do that? How is it that God in human flesh just has that type of brokenness? And that's why I said earlier that God is, is not angry and eager to punish sinners for their shameful ways, what we see here is a compassionate God who is entering into Jerusalem for the purpose of becoming the punishment for sinners. That's why he showed up. That's why he came. That's the whole point. And we see a God whose heart breaks over those who are separated from him to the point that he interrupted his own joyful celebration by weeping over this city we get further insight into it in matthew's gospel matthew 23 verse 37 jesus said this he said jerusalem jerusalem you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you how often i have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing see that last little phrase there you were not willing. That's what broke the heart of Jesus. And it still does. One of the things that just blows my mind about God is that he does not force his way on us. He gives us the ability to, to respond in faith to him, to love him, or not. And that's how love is, right? Right? 
And there, there are people in my life that I desperately want to love me. If, but, but I'm not going to force my way. I don't physically force my wife, Sean, to go on dates with me. <laughs> That'd be a little weird, right? I don't force my daughters to give me hugs. But I'm going to tell you, if my wife never wanted to go on a date with me and my kids never wanted to hug me, my heart would be broken over that. But, but I would not try to force my way on them, right? And God doesn't do that with us either. Jesus said that, that look, I wanted to gather you in like a, like a hen gathers chicks. But you were unwilling. And that's why his heart breaks. So guys, I just want to close with this reminder Jesus loves you so deeply that his heart is broken if you're not in relationship with him. For those of us that do know him, his heart breaks when we're not in right relationship with him. But I want to speak to those that that maybe don't have that relationship with him in the first place. And maybe for some, the thought is that God is kind of an angry God or that you've messed up so much that God doesn't want anything to do with you or whatever the case may be. I'm going to tell you, Read this passage. Jesus is a Savior who loves you so deeply that that he would weep over those that don't know him. And so today, I want to invite you to respond to that kind of a love. I mean, what kind of a God does that? What kind of a God loves us that much in the midst of our sinfulness? What kind of a God sends his only begotten son to become a sacrifice for our sins. I'll tell you what kind of God does that. Our God does that. That's what he did. And his heart continues to break if you don't have a relationship with him. What else could he do to communicate to each one of us how much he loves us? So today, are you ready? To respond to him in faith. Are you ready to say yes? Jesus loves you deeply. He wants to be loved by you in return. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to become your sacrifice for sin. Your savior. He wants to be the one who gives you peace. But we have to respond in faith to him. So are you ready to do that today? Those that are here. Those that are joining us online. Are you ready today to come to know. In a personal way the prince of peace. And if so, I want to lead you through a prayer that we can pray. Just a prayer of surrender to that Jesus that loves us so deeply. We're going to put the words on the screen if that helps to pray along. But if you're ready to say yes to Christ today, I just want to invite you to pray this with me. Let's pray. If you're ready to open your heart to Jesus, turn away from your sinfulness and put your faith in him, then pray a prayer something like this. It's not the words that matter, but something along these lines. Lord Jesus... I don't understand that kind of love that you have for me, but I thank you for it. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and rose on the third day. Today I turn from my sins and I place my complete trust in you. I know that you love me deeply. And I want you to know from this day forward that I love you deeply as well. Amen.